All right. Well, good afternoon. Actually, good morning, everybody. Uh, everybody who is watching and following along. I was jumping ahead a little bit today. It's Friday. T typically, I uh, tend to do that on days like today. Uh, but uh, thank you for following along with this edition of the Hall Call interview series. Uh, as always, I am Will Driscoll, the executive director here at the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. And I'm thrilled once again to bring you this content platform. Uh, it's a lot of fun to do. Uh, before we get started, though, I'd like to thank all of our Hall Call partners, Priority Automotive, City of Virginia Beach, Davcon Inc., Optima Health, White Claw Hard Seltzer, ESPN Radio 94.1, and Davis Business Appraisers. We're able to bring you programs like Hall Call because of their support. Well, right now, golf is in the middle of its fourth and final major of the season, the Open Championship at the old course at St. Andrews, and football training camps are right around the corner. While you wouldn't think the two have a legitimate connection, uh, we actually found one today. Uh, joining us on Hall Call today is 2010 Virginia Sports Hall of Fame inductee Jim Ducebella. And during a long and storied career at the Virginian Pilot that included being named Virginia Sports Writer of the Year six times, Ducebella spent countless columns on the sport of golf and the Washington Commanders franchise. They were known by a different name back then, though. Um, two entities that are making plenty of headlines in the media world today and not always for the right reasons. The sport of golf has been turned on its head with PGA versus Live injecting a real-time rivalry between players, sponsors, and fans, and the Commanders franchise just can't seem to stay out of its own way. So, Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We're looking forward to hearing your perspective on both of these topics that I know are near and dear to your heart. Pleasure's mine. Glad to be here. Well, it should also be noted that Jim is also an author, and his book, King of Clubs, The Great Golf Marathon of 1938, was voted the Golf Book of the Year in 2012 by the International Network of Golf, and of course is available wherever books are sold. Uh, so obviously, if you have any questions, feel free to throw them up on the uh, on the Facebook Live, and we'll see if we can get them over to, to Jim. But Jim, since we're sitting here during the second round of the Open Championship, uh, a very historic major, the 150th Open Championship, do you have a favorite major or tournament uh, as a journalist or a fan that you always, that was always appointment viewing or appointment television for you? Well, I know the de facto answer is the Masters, but for me, it was always the United States Open because A, you travel all over the country, B, you got to see golf courses of various and sundry designs uh, and diff the different challenges that those presented. So I always loved going to the U.S. Open, starting with Oakmont and the church pews at 18 and moving on to Shinnecock and other, I, would, I think I did maybe a dozen US Opens, and it was always my favorite uh, of the four. I did one um, British Open at Turnberry. Uh, that was one of those British Opens where it rained sideways for two or three days. <laughs> and um, not a pleasant experience, um, but I did, and I always enjoyed the Masters as well. PGA, uh, by, that, by the time the PGA used to be played, um, training camp had started, and I was pretty much out of the loop for attending too many of those is the weather at turnberry is that what jerry ratcliffe referenced when he said i need to ask you about your first open covering your first british open well yeah there's <laughs> i um i was assigned to cover curtis strange and i didn't realize this but at the time and maybe now you can media can walk maybe 20 feet behind the player and they assigned a guy to rake the bunkers um to each group and so the fellow that i was walking with and was assigned to had a little flask in his back pocket and uh 
it was cold and wet and windy. And by the time we made the turn, I was a little bit dizzy because <laughs> uh, he kept handing me the flask and I was too proud to say, oh, no, I, I can't. I'm on the job. So about six nips later, I was like, man, I got to I got to keep walking. This is uh, too much. Was it Scotch um, or Irish whiskey? It was Irish whiskey. Thank <laughs> God. Uh, although it had been better for me if it had been Scotch because I've never really acquired a taste for that. <laughs> Oh, that, that's a great story. And I'm sure in that sort of weather, it probably warmed you right up too. It did. Um, you know, you're, you're sitting here now, you know, you were a journalist for a very long time and you never lose that, that journalism bug. As you're watching everything unfold over the past few months between the PGA and Live and even the Commander's franchise, what's going on through your journalistic mind as you see story after story coming out? Well, I feel I still have some friends who cover the, the Commander's from when the days when they were the Redskins. And so I check in with them periodically and we discuss what's going on. Um, I think the, the main focus that all of this has come to is how, how litigious and how much the sport is now ingrained and in, entwined with the legal system. You've got uh, the house uh, subpoenaing, wanting to subpoena Dan Snyder to come in and testify. His lawyer balking at accepting a subpoena but he'll come in and testify voluntarily. Well, what's the difference? The difference is if you're under subpoena, you have to answer every question. If you're not under subpoena, you can cherry pick the questions you, wanna, you want to answer. And then of course, the, um, the Fed, um, excuse me, the Department of Justice is investigating the PGA tour to see if they're, um, if they're ex experiencing illegal practices in terms of excluding players who have opted for the LIV, that's going to go to court and that could take a very long time for that to get weeded out. And so I think that, you know, those things have certainly cast a huge shadow over both of those particular events. And I, I think there's a part of me that says, man, am I glad I'm not covering that day to day. And then there's another part of me that says, I wish I was in the fray and, and up there or out there and, and to cover these things from my own perspective. You know, I, I originally, and, and this is the beauty of, of having these conversations, I originally wanted to start our conversation with golf, but you brought something up uh, uh, regarding the commanders and the fact that they are under, um, well, Dan Snyder has been subpoenaed by, by the House, I believe it's the Finance Committee. You know, what sort of jurisdiction, if there's any, does, the, does Congress have over a situation like this? Because really, from, from everything I've read, the only thing that can make a decision is 32 owners. Yeah. 31 additional yeah. owners. Well, you're absolutely right about that. They, there's no way that Congress or any branch of Congress can force him to sell the team or can force the NFL to tell him to sell the team. I think basically what's this going to come down to, and this is a cynical point of view, but um, I think Snyder's good for the other 30 owner, 31 owners, 30 owners, excuse me, because he masks a lot of potential sins that they've committed. And I think when the attention is on him, it obviously takes away from the attention on the crafts and the jury Joneses of the world. And I think the only thing that would force those other owners to move for a, uh, a Snyder removal would be if the allegations about him cooking the books and giving the other owners less money than they were entitled to out of the gate receipts. I think if that were proven to be true, obviously that would be their main motivating factor. Like I said, it's cynical, but I obviously, I honestly don't think these other things 
impact the other owners the way the, they do the public, frankly, and Congress. Almost uh, allowing them to hide in plain sight is kind of what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, that's exactly what you're hearing me say. <laughs> uh, and, you know, outside of uh, the Donald Sterling situation that the NBA went through uh, a few years ago, I can't remember exactly how many. Is there another precedent that you remember across any of the four major sports where you have an owner being removed for cause? Well, the, the, the de facto example is Jerry Richardson for the Carolina Panthers except that Richardson voluntarily rid himself of the team. So I think just, just really quickly uh, stretching my memory, I can't think of another situation that's, uh, that parallels what we're going through right now. So the, the commanders, you know, growing up, uh, I'm a Norfolk native, and, and we used to always read your, your game stories and your columns after, after every uh, Redskins Sunday back then. And, and it was a team that captured captivated the entire region it wasn't just dc it was the entire region and and you know even now as i'm approaching uh 40 i'm in my late 30s as i'm approaching 40 i, I never thought we'd get to a point where they would lose value amongst the fan bases but now you have the capitals and you have the nationals winning championships uh within the last five years you know how far have the commanders fallen in the dc sports lexicon and really the mid-atlantic sports lexicon well i think that the number of empty seats at fedex field or the number of seats filled by visiting fans from philly from new york from dallas is a clear the worst kind of visiting fans the worst <laughs> <laughs> uh is a clear indication of how far that the franchise has fallen as far as the region is concerned i'll tell you something else the redskins commanders whatever used to do a much better job of, of regional reach out. If you recall, there was a golf turn, an annual golf tournament in Williamsburg every year that was attended by, I don't know, maybe 40 players, coaches, et cetera. There were social events. Uh, Snyder even brought the, the Redskins uh, to Virginia Beach two or three years for um, summer, summer festivities down there. They don't do any of those things anymore. The whole fiasco with training camp in Richmond where Richmond was paying them to come down and they weren't really advertising come down to Richmond and see the team in training camp. And now they've agreed to go back to Ashburn full time. Um, all of those things have contributed. So is cable television. So is the fact that I can turn on uh, a Nationals game, a Braves game, a Mets game, uh, a Caps, Rangers, whatever, anytime pretty much that I want and watch those and watch good teams play. Um, and also um, social media. Social media has had a tremendous uh, impact, as has, and frankly, the Carolina Panthers. I covered the first Panthers game ever spent a week in, Char in Charlotte covering that event. And I was amazed at the number of people when I got back that said, they're going to push the Redskins off of the front page. Well, that didn't quite happen, but they certainly cut into that team of the South, um, you know, philosophy that, that Washington had at the time. So, you know, one of the biggest issues that they're facing right now, and you mentioned it, you kind of alluded to it, is, is the fact that they, they're the Washington commanders, but they play in Maryland and their headquarters is in Ashburn, Virginia. So yeah. they're, they're really kind of all over the place. The stadium itself opened in 1997. How is it that that stadium became so outdated so quickly? To the point that now here we are 25 years later and they need a new stadium. They need a new home. Benign neglect, quite frankly. I think it's always been in the back of the officials' minds that this is a very temporary thing. This is a, first of all, it was an erector set 
kind of stadium because Jack Ken Cook put up the money for it. And he wasn't the kind of guy that was that threw his money around lavishly, uh, particularly for something like a stadium. Um, I just think benign neglect. They, the your it's it's the entire organization has taken an enormous step backwards. Uh, if you look at the these latest ten players that they've put up for their team of ninety uh, best ninety players ever, they've misspelled guys' names. They've left guys off the list who, you know, legitimately should have been in the top 80, let alone the top 90. There's a carelessness and a lack of interest from the top to the bottom that has really contributed uh, to the stadium. Not to mention there's no subway that leads out there. And the the prices were outrageous uh, for concessions and tickets, et cetera. All of those things have created a, a really pretty deep chasm, I think, between the fan base and the team. Well, the, the one positive, because I saw that that recent survey for the, the next 10 people to be included in the 90-year the anniversary of the team. So they did a 70th anniversary team. They did an 80th anniversary team. And each year, they add in 10 people. Larry Pecatello, Virginia Sports Hall of Fame inductee, is on that list. So I encourage everybody, if you get a chance, please go vote uh, for Coach Pecatello. He was a great defensive coordinator uh, for the Super Bowl teams back in the 80s. If you were at training camp starting in a couple weeks, What's a question? What's the question you would want to ask head coach Ron Rivera? Well, the way the team is structured right now, I would ask him, why did they not address the middle linebacker position during the off season? You know, they were talking about, we're going to, we're going to get a middle linebacker. We're, and then they, all of a sudden they were going to move Cole Holcomb into the middle. He may turn out to be a fabulous middle linebacker. I, I don't know. He's a, he, I think I thought he was a very good outside linebacker and developing. But seeing as how your middle linebacker normally calls the defensive signals, is generally one of the more cerebral players on the team, and frankly, as a team leader, I'd want to know, why didn't you address this position? There are guys out there that you could have brought in, uh, signed or whatever, that, um, that could have maybe alleviated the problem that you've had there for the last several years. Uh, I like the way they've done the rest of the things. I like that they didn't uh, re-sign Brandon Scherf because of his injury history. I like the guys they brought in to replace him. I like Carson Wentz. I'm not as down on him as most people are. Yeah, he's got something to, he's got something obviously to prove. But so did Brad Johnson when they, when they acquired Brad Johnson years ago. And that turned out pretty good. I mean, they screwed that up by letting him go. But when he was here, he was a good, he was a good quarterback and, and the kind of guy, if they get that kind of uh, production out of Carson Wentz, they'll be blessed. Well, before we move on to golf, I don't want to I don't want to leave everything about the Commanders franchise negative. You know, you covered this this team, this franchise during probably their greatest run in, in franchise history. Give us a sense of what it was like covering those teams in the 80s and into the early 90s. Well, the organization was first class from the top to bottom. I, I, I could call from Norfolk. I could call Joe Gibbs on the phone on certain days and he would return my calls and we, we could have we'd have conversations. Uh, about some were off the record, some were on the record. Um, every coach, I remember my first training camp, I asked to interview Joe Bugle, and we were sitting on a bench outside the practice field. And when I got done interviewing, I thanked him and he got up and he said, now look, anytime you want something, you get a hold of me. And I was making, taking notes or whatever. And I was really sort of zoned out at that point. And he goes, hey, did you hear me? Anytime you want something, you call me. And, and 
I did that. I mean, you know, and everybody, I can't think of a single player that uh, on that team that wasn't first class. Um, they weren't all friendly to the media, but I mean, as far as players and people were concerned, they were top, they were top shelf. Yeah. Dexter had his problems, but there's no, without question, he had his problems and, and I'm happy for him that he's apparently gotten through those, but um, it was, I, I had an interesting experience recently. I won't name the guy, but he called me and he wanted me to write a book with him. And I, I declined because I have some other things that I'm working on. And he said that uh, I was, had been recommended by some of the old PR people as someone that they could trust um, with, some, with sensitive type material. What that material is, I, didn't, I don't know because I didn't ask once I said declined. But that's the kind of thing where you had a, a real symbiotic relationship with guys. You could get one-on-one -on -one interviews, which you can't get now or, or very rare. Everything is so orchestrated and it really started to change. I hate to say this, but it really started to change with the change of ownership in the team. I don't think that that's a that that's a secret. I think I didn't break any news there, did I? I think a lot of Commanders fans might agree with you there. Yeah. Uh, going on all of twenty three years, I believe now. Uh, but but Commanders fans, are, there's plenty of hope out there. They, they've it's been done well before. Hopefully, it can be done well again, and, and we can get the the the, pro, the franchise back to to where it was uh, decades ago. I think uh, they can. Do, I think they can do well this season. I really do. I like I said. I like most of the moves they've made. There's a blueprint out there, but uh, but now let's talk about another thing. Again, another topic that was very near and dear to what you've covered uh, during your time with the pilot and uh, and throughout your career, and that's golf. Um, you know, I, I I love golf. I watch golf pretty much every weekend, especially the majors. To me, it seems like live came out of nowhere, and it also seems like the PGA's response shows that it it came out of nowhere. Were they unprepared for for the live tour? They would say no, and if and they should have been prepared because this is basically like Groundhog Day, 1994. Greg Norman pr uh, proposed a world tour, mm -hmm. and the PGA fought it, and it went to court, and the PGA lost. They wanted to sanction players that they hadn't given permission to to play, and the, and the uh, court says you can't do that. And the um, Department of um, Federal Trade Commission decided not to pursue the case, and they should have, um, perhaps they should have, given what's going on. Uh, I think they've already reacted in a way that makes you wonder uh, by proposing this eight tournament, uh, no cut, low, low membership um, event, depending on the top 50 FedEx points, for um, $20 million a tournament. Mm -hmm. And again, that's, you know, they proposed that it hasn't been approved or, but it's, it's on the books for 2023. And I think that's a, that's kind of a knee jerk reaction that maybe gives you the idea that some of what the tour players have said about the PGA not listening to their, their complaints has some merit. I, I wouldn't have thought so, uh, given the enormous amount of money that they're playing for, but maybe there's some credence to that. So Greg Norman is basically the, the central figure in, in this right now. He's a two-time Open champion. Uh, he's obviously spearheading a lot of the, the PR campaigns around Live Tour. And you just mentioned it's not the first time he's, he's been attached to something like this. What is his standing in the global game of golf, and how is he viewed by his peers? Well, I think the, for the time being, the, his viewing is, is rather dim. 
uh, if you take away the players that have defected from the PGA Tour to the LIV, I think that they see him as as a an unnecessary distraction from from the game. Uh, they they rail against the crassness of you know making one hundred and forty thousand dollars for missing the cut at these tournaments, and the crassness of of being in relationship with the Saudis, who you know. Let's face it, they have this well-deserved reputation for human rights violations that goes way beyond the, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, way beyond that. And it seems like this is, in, in, crassly, it seems like it's blood money that they're putting up to try and massage their public relations standing in the world. I don't think it's going to work. I don't see how you can forget the types of things that they engage in. And um, people who have any real sort of sense of, of responsibility, look and say, I don't want anything to do with this, with this tour. I don't want anything because of the Saudis. It's not Norman necessarily, but why he cast his lot with them for this obscene amount of monopoly money basically um, is a mystery to people when they rail against it. For somebody, for the, the casual observer who says, well, there's an Asian tour, there's a European tour, there's a PGA tour, this is just another option for PGA Tour players that are independent contractors. Um, that I mean, that, and that's what they are. What, what do you What do you say to those people? How do you describe what makes this tour different from those other tours? Well, what makes this tour different is you don't have to play worth a hoot in order to make an enormous amount of money. I mean, I could go over there and miss the cut and give me one hundred and forty. I'll tell you what, I'll settle for one hundred and ten thousand dollars. You know, just get me into one of these tournaments. I'll caddy for you for 10%. Well, it should probably be the other way around. I would <laughs> caddy for you, but um, that's the thing. I mean, it's just cheap, easy money. And yeah, they're independent contractors, but so what? I mean, you have to earn your money on those other tours. I, me I mean, I remember having conversations with guys who say, look, we pay our own expenses. We pay our caddies. We pay our travel. We pay our housing. We pay our food, we pay all of those things. And if we miss the cut, we don't make anything. And it, at the time, it cost $70,000, $75,000 just to be on the tour mm -hmm. in expenses. And then, um, so you have none of those issues and worries. The other thing I think, Will, is some of the excuses put forth for leaving the PGA Tour to go into the other, we're growing in the game. You know, nobody has ever said we don't have enough golf tournaments in the world ever. You know, I mean, you can uh, golf on five different channels, you know, almost every day. Um, and I think that they just they see the they see the phoniness mm -hmm. of it. It's not you know, about growing the game you're about growing your bank account. I think there's three, maybe four different types of players that are on this LIV. One is the guy who has made who feels like he's made his legacy. Phil Mickelson, you know, no matter how tarnished his reputation may be now. He's made his legacy. Then there's guys who are close. They needed to win a couple. They need to win a couple of tournaments, major tournaments, to create their legacy. And but they've they've opted for the money. Then there's the guys who say, "I'm never going to win enough tournaments to create a legacy for myself. So I might as well cash in right now while I can." And I, I think you know it's probably an oversimplification, but to me those are the three main. Uh, classes of guys who are playing this tour. Uh, one more thing. I also think in the back of some of their minds, they see this as an AFL, NFL type of situation. 
or an ABA, NBA type of situation where they go, if we get enough guys to go from the PGA Tour to the LIV, they're going to have to negotiate with us. They're going to have to take us back and we can make our money now and then in the future work on building our legacy. You mentioned that there are some stars that have made their way over a handful, not not quite as many as as um, you know it, it would seem in reading about it. But you've mentioned Phil, Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson. He's he's actually playing. He had a great round this morning, five under sixty seven to vault himself near the the top of the leaderboard. He was tied the last time I checked. Uh, Cameron Young and Cam Smith have both overtaken him because they teed off later. But five under to go to nine under through two rounds, that, that puts him right in contention. Absolutely. That, but that's really a, a tricky thing that I think everybody's kind of waiting for how the majors view this. And, and obviously the one major that didn't that we don't have yet is the Masters because this all happened after this year's Masters. And right. the, the British Open is run by the RNA. Uh, the U.S. Open is run by the USGA. PGA of America is the PGA, and and the Masters is its own entity. So all of these third parties have control over their tournaments and how they view, you know, entry into these tournaments. Um, what do you think is going to happen when we do come around to the Masters next year? I think they're gonna. I think they're gonna uh, invite a field that excludes. Well, if Dustin Johnson wins the British Open, he, he he's has he's, play, an, he's, he's going to play in the Masters. Yeah, but I think other than that, I think those players who are not of that type of caliber and have not achieved those types of things, I think they'll be left on the sidelines. There's plenty of talent out there that could that could fill a Masters field easily without having to irritate your relationship with the PGA Tour by inviting them. You know, there's so many baffling things about this. I, um, Greg Norman should be at the British Open. He should have been invited to part as part of the 150th celebration because he earned it. And it seems to me to be ridiculously petty and hypocritical that he's not invited to come and celebrate with the other champions, yet you invite X number of guys who are on the LIV tour to come over and play in the tournament. If your purpose was to quell public discussion of the LIV, you failed because those guys are talking about it just as much as Greg Norman would have. And in fact, you've given Norman and the LIV more publicity than they probably would have gotten uh, if you had invited him to come and partake in the celebration and the dinner and all of those things that he richly deserved. Well, and I think two, two of the majors in particular, the Open and the US Open, they are open competitions. So yeah. even if, say, the RNA or the USGA said, well, we're not going to allow you in via the traditional you know, uh, methods, winning a tournament, being in the top 10, top 25, what's stopping them from going out to a Monday qualifier and trying to play their way in? Well, the way things stand, not a thing. <laughs> yeah, not a thing. Good point. <laughs> if, uh, if, if you had to give an advantage to, to either side right now, would you be leaning PGA just because they are the PGA Tour? Yeah, I would be. I, I do think that uh, the eight tournament, $20 million tournament thing is a sign that the PGA Tour is willing to talk to the players and willing to do some extra incentive types of things to hang on to the bulk of their of its membership. But I think they're, they're so big and they do so many, they raise so much money and the players are playing for so much money. And it's such an established part in terms of television contract, et cetera. 
that I think that they have the, clearly they hold an advantage. You know, a lot of the a lot of the publicity has gone to the players who've left to go over to to live. But you have Tiger Woods, Rory McIlroy, Justin Thomas, three big power brokers in the PGA, in the world of the PGA, coming out in vocal support of the PGA. How important is it for their top stars to, to make that public proclamation? Oh, I think it's I think it's hugely important. And it, it's encouraging to see that they presumably did it on their own without prompting from any of the organizations. There's a really interesting story that goes back, I don't know how many years ago, but Tiger won the Arnold Palmer Award and Palmer was alive and was going to present it to him personally. And as they're walking into the auditorium or wherever they held it, this presentation ceremony, Palmer pulls him aside and said, look, you deserve this award and I'm proud and happy to give it to you. However, don't forget the people on whose shoulders you're standing who built this tour. The guys who were riding five in a car from one tournament to the next, the guys who were taking courtesy cars because they couldn't afford rental cars and sharing rooms, et cetera. Those are the guys that made the foundation for this tour that you're playing for just such an enormous amount of money for. Never forget them. And I think he took it to heart. Is there some merit to the idea that Tiger Woods, with with all of his, you know, uh, off off the course issues in his career, he's gone from being loved to being vilified to then being loved again. And so he knows what that feeling is, and he doesn't want to, to have to go through that again in the public perception. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. I, and I think that he has become, sadly, he's become a more sympathetic character. You know, like yesterday at the Open coming up 18, you know, hopelessly behind the leaders and and presumably so again today. I know he was one over at some point. Yeah, I think today. he finished a plus seven. Plus seven. Uh, so he's going to be way off the cut line. Yep. And I think that um, I, I think he's become a sympathetic figure because of his because of the recent physical ailments that he's overcome and trying to watch him walk 72 holes. I mean, it's painful to watch him walk Augusta National. Mm-hmm. And it's painful to watch him try and walk the U.S. Open. Um, and the British, of course, you can really tell the defin- the defining swales and hills and dales at a, at a British Open. Not so much sometimes at Augusta, but that's a very difficult golf course to walk. And I think that the fact that he's trying to make this transition and trying to keep his name out there and trying to compete, basically, and whether it's the holy grail of, of the most majors or whatever his motivation is, I think it's turned him into a, simp- a very sympathetic figure. You can't not like the guy and the effort that he's putting forth. We have just a few minutes left, so I, got, I just got a couple more questions for you. But you made a, a very interesting analogy that I had not thought of, but you mentioned the ABA versus the NBA and the AFL versus the NFL when it comes to PGA versus the Live Tour. What, what's the middle ground? There has to be a middle ground that this all ends up in, correct? Maybe 10 years from now, there'll be a series of tournaments uh, similar to the FedEx Cup or something like that, that that both leagues sponsor or co-sponsor. It's going to take a lot of work on the part of the LIV. I have a a friend who's a former USGA official who I talked to last week about this, and he said, I don't see any way that the Saudis are going to be able to continue not be able to, that they're going to want to pony up the kind of money that they're, that they're putting up year after year after year. What are they getting 
what, what, you know, what do they get out of this? People have completely overlooked whatever charitable quote contributions that they're making because of this. Um, they're not getting any great publicity. In fact, it, they're just the, quite the opposite. But I do think at some point in time, if they can, if the LIB can withstand the initial shock uh, and the initial backlash from the public, that they'll be able to put together something that'll be a quasi merger of the two. Yeah, eventually there has to be an ROI. You have to have yeah. some sort of return on the investment, and it's yeah. a it's a very hefty uh, investment. Exactly. Uh, one last thing, I, I don't want to get out of here without talking about your book, The King of Clubs, the the Great Golf Marathon of 1938. Give us a brief synopsis and, and tell us, you know, what we can expect uh, when we go out and we pick this book up and we read it. Sure. It's a, it's a true story about a, a Chicago stockbroker who was born in Virginia Beach, uh, who makes a bet worth uh, $250,000, I guess, in today's money, maybe even more than that, about a certain tract of land in the Allenton section of Virginia Beach that he owns in conjunction with a friend of his named Fred Turk, another Chicago stockbroker. They get into a disagreement about what to do with the land. Turk wants to sell. Farabee wants to, his name was Jay Smith Farabee. He wants to keep the land. They decide that they're going to make a bet that if Farabee can play 144 holes of golf in one day at Olympia Fields Country Club in Chicago, he'll take Turk's share of the land. He does it. Uh, then that's, that sparks an entire tsunami of people playing golf marathons 150 holes, et cetera. And they come, Turk comes back to him and says, this is not a big deal that you played 144 holes. What are you going to do from, I want a chance to get my money, my money and my land back. So they concoct a scheme where he'll play 600 holes of golf over four consecutive days in eight different cities, starting in Los Angeles and ending in New York. Um, Ruben Train, the air conditioning magnate, is one of Farabee's clients. He rents a DC-3 sky sleeper from American Airlines, <clears throat> pardon me, to fly him from city to city to city to city. And from September 25 to 28, 1938, before the invention of the golf cart, Fairby undertakes the chance, the task of trying to play the 600 holes. Oh my goodness. That as a as a fellow golfer, that sounds amazing, but it also sounds exhausting. <laughs> yeah. That might be more holes than I've ever played in my life. Yeah, that's true. Well, if, if everybody, if anybody listening now or when they watch this video, if you get a chance, please go out, get King of Clubs, the great golf marathon of 1938. I'm sure it's a I'm sure it's going to be something that you won't put down. Uh, great story. And thank you for that brief synopsis. And Jim, thank you for the time today and the perspective on all things commanders. Uh, golf. It, it's, a, it's a really fun conversation and being able to harken back to, to some of the experience you had covering both of these. So thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Well, it's my pleasure. We left one event out, which is the state amateur began today at Independence Country Club in Midlothian. Very nice. Virginia State Golf Association State Amateur Championship up in Midlothian. So if you get the chance, maybe go out and uh, see some of the next generation of golfers. Great. Thanks, Will. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Jim. And, and I'd like to thank everybody who, who did follow along and will watch this uh, in the future. Again, I'd like to thank all of our sponsors, Priority Automotive, City of Virginia Beach, Davcon Inc., Optima Health, ESPN Radio 94.1, and Davis Business Appraisers. Stay tuned for updates on the Hall of Fame and Hall Call. Follow us on our website and all of our social media platforms, VA Sports HOF. The website is .com. The social media platforms are all that handle. Once again, I am Will Driscoll. 
uh, with the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. Whatever you do, participate, don't spectate, and we'll see you next time.